The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let's uh, carry on where we left off this morning. Uh, and uh, we have now come to right livelihood, which is the fifth factor uh, on the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, and uh, this is defined in the following way in this particular sutta, the Sabhasava. No, this is not the Sabhasava, this is the uh, Mahachattarisaka Sutta. And uh, this is what it says uh, in the sutta. Um, uh, in this case, mendicants, right view comes first. How does right view come first? One understands wrong livelihood as wrong and right livelihood as right. This is one's right view. And what because is wrong livelihood? It is scheming. Uh, um, t talking is not a Talking doesn't mean very much. How can talking be wrong livelihood? That's not, I don't, no, I don't like that one. That is, uh, there is an alternative translation which is much better than talking here. Anyway, hinting is fine, belittling and pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. So, um, yeah, I, that's right. Yeah, I think more like uh, flattery, I think, is flattery is more the right, a uh, better translation here. Yeah, so flattery uh, and uh, using material gain to gain more material gain. Uh. So uh, you can see the idea here is basically to use dodgy means uh, yeah, to achieve uh, your livelihood uh, and to make gains of whatever kind. Uh, using gain to to get more gain, well, this is what people often do. Uh, yeah, if you like invest something or, or, or something like that, it's kind of gaining gain with gain. Uh, but I think this is more for a monastic setting. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to invest. It just means that uh, certainly for a monastic, this is not how you think about your livelihood. Your livelihood as a monastic is more your bowl and robe, and you kind of wander around and people put food in your bowl. And you say, yay, food in my bowl. Uh, you're really happy as a consequence. Uh, that's the monastic way. <laughs> so uh, it's really an extension of right action. Yeah, this is what it, this is, uh, a right action. So you ensure that you don't uh, do things that are harmful to others uh, uh, because of your desires and greed and uh, even just the need for making livelihood. You do it in the right way. In other places, it's more specifically defined in that way. Uh, right livelihood is not trading in living beings, not trading in meat, which often yeah, includes like slaughter. Uh, yeah, that's why that is a problem. Uh, uh, not trading in alcohol, in poisons and weapons, I think is the fifth one. Uh, something like that. Uh, so obviously anything which is harmful, yeah, it's an extension of right action. I don't think we need to go into great detail. It's not really explained very often in great detail in the suttas. Uh, so uh, it's, it's probably fairly self-explanatory. Yeah. So, and then again, you have this idea of it being twofold, uh, yeah, ordinary right livelihood, and then the extraordinary life, right livelihood of the noble ones. Uh. And it should maybe be added there that uh, 
the noble ones, you know, when you have right livelihood, it means you don't live by acting as a doctor or acting as a, a prognosticator, someone who kind of tries to foresee the future. Uh, you read someone's palms and you say, yeah, this is really cool. Yeah, I can read your palm. I can tell you your future. Uh, and uh, apparently there was a mother of a monk. She was supposed to be one of these palm readers. Uh, and so she would kind of test her skills on her son, who was a monk, yeah, to see what happens when you try to read the future of a monk. Yeah, and apparently she said that, well, with monks it's so difficult because your palms are changing all the time. Uh, can't read them. Yeah, It's like they are kind of your future is altering you. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's true. Maybe kind of if you practice well and you are kind of... Uh, changing your mind and you're actually developing then the future is no longer predictable because you are actually developing out of the set course that you're supposed to have and maybe it's true of all of us yeah if you and anyone who practices well on this buddhist path you can't really read the future because your future is changed because your mind is changing yeah your mind is becoming more purified yeah isn't that kind of cool idea so test that out is anyone who reads palms here See what happens? No? No one? Okay. You're too wise to read palms. Okay, good. <laughs> so this is called wrong livelihood for monastics. Uh, so anyway, you shouldn't make, it's not a deal. Yeah, okay, I will you know, read your palms and you will give me food afterwards. It's not, that's not how Buddhism works. The job of a monastic is first and foremost to practice properly. And then, you know, you get support and then do some teachings as well if you... It's not even obligatory to teach, and not all monastics teach, but uh, that's really as far as the livelihood of monastics is concerned. Eh? There's a long section in uh, Diga Nikaya 1, the Brahmajala Sutta, famous sutta, uh, Brahma's net, yeah, the supreme net, uh, which kind of captures all the various wrong views in the world, has a long section on wrong livelihood for monastics, uh, all kind of things that you're not supposed to be doing here. Yeah. It's not all that not all that interesting, so I would skip it if I were you. But it's there, yeah. just just for your information. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, so this is kind of the standard definition of wrong live uh, right livelihood. And it says, what bhikkhus is right livelihood? That is the ordinary right livelihood, and it is the noble disciple abandons uh, wrong livelihood and gains his living by right livelihood. This is right livelihood. <laughs> so uh, that's not necessarily not sounds. In, in, it's uh, okay, good. I suppose uh, fine. It doesn't not very informative. This is the standard definition of right livelihood throughout the suttas. Uh, you make an effort to abandon wrong livelihood and and to enter upon right livelihood. This is one's right effort. Mindfully, one abandons wrong livelihood. Mindfully, one enters upon and dwells in right livelihood. Uh, this is where you get what is called um, a, a Buddhist hybrid English. Uh, you enter upon and dwell in right livelihood. This is what only find that in a Buddhist text. No one in the right mind would ever say that in ordinary English language. Uh, are you dwelling in right livelihood? Mm. <laughs> It's kind of, when you think about it, it's really weird, right? It's, there's not proper English at all. No one would ever say that. Uh, that's why it's called Buddhist hybrid English, because it's an English that has been kind of uh, skewed into an alternative new form of English, uh, um, skewed by Buddhist ideas and concepts. And this is the hard part about translating. If you want to translate, it should really be idiomatic, proper English. The more skewed it is in this way, the less 
direct is the experience of communicating with someone like the Buddha, yeah, because it's like there's a barrier there between you and the Buddha, not a direct communication. You don't, it's not like someone is talking to you. No one would ever say that, so how can they possibly be talking to you? And this is one of the challenges of the translation process, is to translate it in such a way that it actually feels as if the Buddha is talking to you. Yeah, then it's really powerful. The sense of the spiritual teacher being present, that is the ideal way of translating here. So um, le let me check if um, Bhante Sujato has got this a little bit better. Usually he does. His, his translations are a bit more idiomatic. Uh, and this is, let's see what he has. Uh, I'm sorry, I apologize for kind of detaining us a little bit with these, um, these things, but um, uh, yeah, so he has, it's when a noble disciple gives up wrong livelihood and earns a living by right livelihood. Yeah, that makes much better sense. Uh, that is something you can kind of relate to. Uh, so that is, uh, well done, Atan Sujato. Yay, Atan Sujato. <laughs> so this has been one of the things I was discussing with him quite a lot, how we supposed to translate the suttas. And these are some of the kind of core principles that we agreed on. If you're going to translate, this is how you have to do it. Uh, so that it actually is a sense of direct uh, transmission from the Buddha to, to all of us. Um, so you make this effort, uh, yeah, and uh, um, yeah, uh, and then uh, you mindfully enter upon it, and these three states they run and circle around right livelihood. That is right view right effort and right mindfulness. So. Okay, I'm going to leave that there. That is this uh, Majima 117 for you. I just brought it in to kind of complete the Noble Eightfold Path uh, and so we don't kind of miss out on the earlier factors. Uh. So now uh, what I'm going to do, I have a look at a couple of uh, small little suttas, like a little break and a kind of intermission or whatever you want to call it uh, from the Dhammapada and from the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya again, the Devata Sangyutta, a couple of short suttas before we com come back to the Sabhasava Sutta, all the defilements. So, so this is a verse from Dhammapada number 118 and I think this is, um, I th again I think it is uh, Bhante Sujato's translation I think. Yeah. And should a person do good, let them do it again and again. Let them find pleasure therein, for blissful is the accumulation of good. It's nice. Yeah, so when you, this is kind of the ideal, yeah, is to do good. Punya is here, merit, sometimes that doesn't merit. You should keep on doing it, yeah, ideally, moment to moment. And never really stop. Always keep building it up, yeah. And you should find pleasure this, therein. This is kind of very interesting and a very important point. Uh, is the idea to actually enjoy doing good, yeah. Get get a kick out of it. Wow, that actually feels really nice. And there's something very powerful about that. When you enjoy doing the good, it means that your mindfulness is very strong because you enjoy it. Uh, you're very clear about what you're doing yeah? and because you're mindfulness and strong and you enjoy it at the same time it means that you can recall it very easily yeah? later on yeah? and this then becomes the power of recollection of the you know the sila nusati and the chaga nusati recollection of your 
your good character and also recollection of, of your generosity, it becomes very easy because you have made a very powerful imprint on your mind uh, through mindfulness and through enjoying what you're doing. Uh. And any powerful imprint uh, is obviously very easy to recall. Uh. So get off, get off on giving, yeah. And sometimes just giving and being kind and doing the right can actually it sometimes it feels really great, yeah. Uh, being of service, the person who is of service uh, is often the person who gains much more than the person who receives the service. Uh, we should of course also be open to receiving service because if we know how much benefit we get out of giving, we should also be open for other people giving to us. Yeah, because that gives their, and them an opportunity to also gain the benefit of giving. Yeah. So we should never be kind of proud and think, yeah, I am the giver, I'm not the receiver. That's the wrong way of thinking. Yeah. Sometimes we all need to be, we all need to be receivers for there to be any givers. Yeah. So it's, it's the wrong way of thinking to kind of have that sense of pride of being the giver, but not uh, being above receiving, especially when you get sick, perhaps, and people have to look after you and nurse you. Great, let them do that. So, uh, yeah, so you find pleasure in the giving itself. For blissful is the accumulation of good. The more you build up of all these good things, uh, especially when you find pleasure in them, uh, the result of that is blissful, both in this life, in your meditation, and also, of course, as you carry on into your future existence. Uh, these things build up in a positive way here. Okay, the next one is, is again from the uh, Devata Sangyuta, the uh, connected discourses on uh, gods or spiritual heavenly beings, if you like. And this is full of conversations between the gods and the Buddha. The Buddha would somehow would hang out with the gods, it seems. Uh, and they would have these little conversations. And very often the devatas would kind of utter an inspired utterance. It's called an udana, inspired utterance. And then the Buddha would sort of reply, yeah, or, or the deva would ask the Buddha for a comment. So a devata uttered this inspired utterance in the presence of the Blessed One. Good is, good is giving, dear sir. Even when one has little, giving is good. When done with faith too, giving is good. A gift of legitimate gain is also good. Giving intelligent, intelligently too is good. And further, restraint towards living beings is also good. One who harms no living being, who does no evil from fear of criticism, in that they praise the coward, not the brave, for the good do no evil out of fear. This is what the Devata says. And then we have the Buddha's response afterwards. But let's just, before we go to the Buddha's response, let's just uh, uh, have a little bit of a look at what the Devata is saying here. He's obviously talking about uh, giving and the importance of giving. And uh, you will notice that the giving is qualified by a number of qualifiers, what makes giving powerful. And uh, one of the things is, even if you only have a little bit, yeah, giving is good. Uh, giving, uh, sometimes you don't have maybe a lot of means to give, but you give what you can, yeah. You make sure, of course, that you have enough for yourself, you have enough for your family. Uh, you should never, never give too much. You should always find a balance in these things. Uh, but uh, giving is always good, even if you give just a tiny amount, because that's all you can afford. Uh, it's never a bad thing to do, uh, 
always always gooder and sometimes if you are very poor it can be a big sacrifice to give small things uh, and then in some ways that is very powerful precisely because it is a big sacrifice when done with faith too giving is good yeah you have a feeling that you are giving to something really worthwhile you have confidence and faith and with that faith often comes the sense of joy precisely because you have faith in something and then that becomes more powerful again because again it lifts you up it kind of brings your mind to a higher level when you feel joy and happiness in what you're doing it makes you peaceful it readies you for meditation practice and all of these kind of things so giving with faith is good. A gift of legitimate gain is also good. And what that means is that when you have worked really hard for something, yeah, yeah you have, um, and um, I'm sure many of you have spent your lives working really hard. Yeah, this is kind of so common uh, these days, especially among good Buddhists. So you have worked really hard in your life uh, and the things that you own in your life, you have gained legitimately through your hard work. Yeah. You haven't done it in crooked ways. Uh, you haven't been uh, uh, deceiving people or stealing or doing anything dodgy. Uh, whatever you have is legitimate. Uh, and when you give of something that is legitimate in that way, uh, it is a powerful gift because it feels like it truly is yours. This is mine to give away. I have a right to this. Uh, and so you give it away. Uh. But if you have been slightly deceptive, uh, if you have been doing things in the kind of a dodgy manner, uh, then it doesn't feel like it really is yours in quite the same way. Uh. And so when you give it away, it doesn't have the same sense of sacrifice. Uh, doesn't have the same sense of purity in the gift. Uh. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it, uh, how that works. Uh. So uh, um, giving is always good, but that sense of uh, legitimacy is, uh, is important here as well. Uh. And the last one is giving intelligently is good. So be wise about where you give. Understand where it is needed. Yeah. Sometimes at uh, Bodhinyana Monastery we have the Katina Day. Uh, and then on the Katina Day we have maybe 1,000, 2,000 people come sometimes. There's a mass of people. There's a sea of people. And they go Pindabad and you kind of get sunburned by the time you come finish your Pindabad. It takes so long. Yeah. <laughs> And sometimes people come with umbrellas and parasols to hold over you so you don't kind of fry like a lobster in the sun. Uh, and, um, <laughs> then, uh, uh, and then, you know, if you are number 2001 person and you give food to the monks, it's not going to make much difference, yeah? Uh, and it's just like, okay, number 2001, you know, you, maybe you will eat one of my grains of rice because 2,000 grains is kind of enough. Uh, it doesn't add very much to the occasion. Of course, there might be other reasons for coming for the katina. It might be that you enjoy the company, you want to hear a bit of Dhamma, you, you want to maybe give in some other offering. It's all, it's all good. It's not bad to come, of course. But it's not really the day when it is most required. So you are intelligent about how you give. You give at the time when there is a need. You ask, what, you know, if you want to give to a Buddhist cause, then you ask the monastery, well, what do you require in the monastery right now? What is going on? What is needed? Uh, you are more inquisitive uh, and you find out what is required. Uh. And of course, one of the things is that you don't have to give to Buddhist causes. Uh, yeah, it's, there are lots of good causes in this world for giving. Uh, and uh, sometimes Buddhists, maybe we focus too much on Buddhist causes sometimes. Uh, but it's good to broaden that out. Uh, remember that there is a whole world out there of need and and demand for these things uh, and uh, then you become more broadly compassionate and caring uh, when you take in all of humanity in that way not just humanity animals anything uh, the devas give to your departed uh, 
ancestors, yeah? Keep it really, really broader. So this is the idea of giving intelligently, yeah? giving wisely, understanding where the requirements are. Don't just give blindly. And um, then, of course, comes the even higher giving. So that is kind of the basic giving, if you like. I shouldn't call it basic because it sounds like I'm demeaning it, but it is like the the starting point very often. Uh, and um, then comes the higher kind of gifts. Yeah, the restraint towards living beings is also good. Uh, where you don't harm anyone uh, in the whole world. Uh, and you don't do anything bad because you fear criticism from others. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you uh, uh, they uh, if you are a coward, you, you might be praised for because you fear criticism and say, yeah, good on you for doing. And you do evil because of cowardice. Uh, but if you are brave, you don't do evil out of fear anywhere. That's what he's saying there. Uh, and this is the higher kind of gift to the world. Uh, yeah, the say that keep in the five precepts is a beautiful gift to the whole world uh, because people can feel at ease in your presence. Uh, they know you're not going to take them for a ride. They know you're not going to cheat them out of anything. Uh, they know they can trust you uh, in all kinds of ways. Uh, and that is a very powerful thing in the world, uh, to feel trust, to feel the sense of uh, that you're with someone who has integrity. Uh, that's a marvelous thing. Uh, and uh, this is a higher kind of gift because it's a gift of you can be at peace. Uh, you can relax around somebody because you know they're going to be kind. Uh, they're always going to have your best interest at heart. Uh, and that is a obviously something very, very beautiful. So think about that sometimes, yeah? If you are among those people who keep in the five precepts, and I know most of you are here, uh, yeah, rejoice in that. Uh, it's actually something very beautiful. Uh, it's something magnificent. Uh, you're giving a gift to the entire world, animals, human beings, everyone, uh, just by keeping those five precepts. Uh. And then uh, the Buddha replies, uh, well, first of all, another devata said to the Blessed One, which one? So there's actually a long list of uh, devatas who have spoken. I just took out one verse here. But they often ask, yeah, which one Blessed One has spoken well? Yeah. And the Buddha replies, which, is often very, which he often says, you have all spoken well in your own way, but listen to me too. Surely giving is praised in many ways, but the path of Dhamma surpasses giving here. For in the past and even long ago, the good and wise ones attained extinguishment. So this is how usually how the Buddha speaks. The devatas, they will kind of come with a more ordinary idea of wisdom and what is good. And then the Buddha kind of lifts it up to the highest level. Yeah, the path of the Dhamma and the attainment of Nibbana itself is where the Buddha very often talks about so, uh, but of course, these two are not kind of mutually incompatible. In fact, quite the opposite. They are very highly compatible with each other, whereby the first one leads to the second one. It's quite interesting here how the Buddha says, you have all spoken well. Yeah, there's no need to kind of distinguish. Uh, this is something you see in many places in the suttas. The Dhamma can be expressed in many ways. Uh, a single line of verse or a verse does not necessarily have one specific meaning. It can be interpreted in different ways and all the various interpretations can be right, especially when it comes to verse, because it is meant to be inspiring. It is meant not to be precise and accurate. Different interpretations are often allowable. Okay, so that is just a few verses for you. 
I just added them in there for a bit of uh, variety. Now we come back to uh, the Sabasava Sutta again, continuing with this discourse. And we're now going to start with the first of the seven kinds of defilements that have to be given up. And these are the defilements to be given up by seeing. Dasana is seeing in Pali. And um, so far we have only seen the very beginning of the sutta. We focused on the idea of uh, yoniso manasikara, wise attention. Yeah. So this now is the first aspect of that wise attention, seeing rightly. Yeah? And uh, it's, this is quite profound, this first part here, and quite interesting actually. Um, and um, yeah, so let's just go, go with it and see what happens. Uh, and what are the defilements that should be given up by seeing? Yeah? Take an uneducated ordinary person who has not seen the noble ones uh, and is neither skilled nor trained in the teaching of the noble ones. Uh, they have not seen good persons uh, and are neither skilled nor trained in the teaching of the good persons. Uh, they don't understand to which things they should pay attention uh, and to which things they should not pay attention. Uh, so they pay attention to the things they shouldn't, they shouldn't uh, and don't pay attention to the things they should. So this is already what we saw before at the very introduction. It's basically more of the same. Uh, the uneducated ordinary person is the asuttava putujana. Putujana is like the many person. Uneducated asuttava, the one who hasn't heard. Yeah, you haven't heard education in those days was hearing. You heard from someone. Yeah. And the noble ones, of course, are the Aryas. And you have no idea what the Aryas talk about. And you are not skilled or trained. So you have no idea about the Dhamma or anyone else who has a good teaching. Good person is the Sapurisa. This is the a synonym, really, for the Aryas normally. So, uh, you, and same thing, you're not skilled and trained in their teachings. And because you don't know anything about the Dhamma, you pay attention to the wrong things. Yeah, you pay attention to those things you should not pay attention to, and you don't pay attention to those things that you should pay attention to. So this shows you where Yoniso Manasikara comes from in the beginning. It comes from your wise attention. is not something that is inherent in you, not something that you understand by yourself. In the beginning, it comes from the Buddha. The Buddha says, this is how you should think. And very often you will recognize it straight away. You will know the Buddha is right. It's kind of intuitive. But still, we often need that little bit of a spark to get going on the path. Kind of interesting. It's called wise attention, but it comes from someone else. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? So often we think of wisdom as something that is within us, and we have we have that wisdom, so we carry it out. But in Buddhism, because everything is conditioned, because we are everything we gain is ultimately external. It means that even wisdom comes from without. And then we take it on board. That doesn't make it less wise. It just means that it doesn't come from us necessarily straight away. Um, it comes from outside, first of all. And you find this in some of the suttas elsewhere. This is how the Dhamma is explained. You hear the Dhamma of the Buddha, and then when you hear it, or first of all, you see the Sapurisa, the Buddhas, the noble ones, and you hear the Dhamma, then you gain faith. Yeah, you hear them and think, wow, this is good stuff. Yeah, and then when you gain faith, then you apply Yoniso Manasikara. 
Yeah, wise attention comes from faith. Wisdom comes from faith. This is what is so interesting about the Buddhist teachings. There isn't really any clear distinction between wisdom and faith. View, faith, wisdom, all of these things, confidence, are very closely related to each other. The more wisdom you have, the more faith faith you have, because these are teachings that relate to reality. So if you are wise about reality, you will see that these teachings are about the reality of things, and then you gain more confidence in them. That's why faith is not always the right word. Confidence might be better, because there's confidence about something which is true. It is faith, because faith often has the idea of emotions coming with it. Yeah, faith often means you are lifted up, and you feel something very, you feel a delightful feeling coming with that confidence. And Sadha, the Pali word, has both of those qualities. The confidence on the one hand, and then the emotional aspect, the feeling on the other hand. So it comes kind of has everything with it. Yeah, it's kind of very, uh, I don't know, there's something very compelling about these teachings, uh, which bring faith and wisdom together in this way. These are not separate issues. In fact, they grow together. Uh, and when you have the highest wisdom, when you see the truth for yourself, that's when you gain the highest faith, highest confidence. The avecha, pasada, the unshakable confidence of faith. So uh, uh, you learn, first of all, to pay attention in the right way. And of course, you will recognize that the Buddha is right just by s when you see that. So then you carry out those, those instructions, yeah? And then you have uh, success. But first of all, what are the things to which they pay attention to, but they should not pay attention to? And they are the things that when attention is paid to them, give rise to the unarisen defilements, the asavas, and make the arisen defilements grow. Uh, we have seen this before, the defilement of sensual or sensory desire, uh, the desire to be reborn, uh, and uh, the ignorance. Uh, these are the things which they pay attention to but should not. So if you pay attention to the wrong thing, then these defilements grow. I said before that this sutta uses the word asava in a broader sense, but here the word asava it is used in its ordinary sense, the three kinds of asavas. Yeah, so desire for sensory things grow. How does that happen? That is when you look for the beauty of the things in the sensory world. When you delight, yeah, oh, this beautiful hall here, we're all sitting here, that is already kind of a little bit of delighting, the tiny bit, yeah, this, enjoying this hall, I think, is kind of okay, because you enjoy it for also for the kind of spiritual content, so it's a bit different, uh, but, you know, seeing the kind of uh, beauty in things in the world and rejoicing in that, and then uh, not understanding its impermanent and unreliable nature, that is part of this, yeah, so it's kind of finding gratification in things in the sensory world. That's really how you give rise to these things. Uh, and then you have the uh, desire to be reborn. This is the bhava-asava. And really, it means really kind of the desire to exist. Yeah, that's what it means, or the defilement of desire for existence. I think it's a little bit narrow to call it desire to be reborn, because it also occurs right now. Yeah, you, you want to exist, you don't want to kind of just get annihilated on the spot. So, um, uh, but it includes also re rebirth, of course, the way you want to carry on into the future. Uh, and this is when you think in terms of me, yeah, I exist, I am something. You rejoice in your 
personality, in your character, in who you think you are. Uh, and you want that to carry on into the future. Uh, and we shall see in a second exactly how that works uh, in this uh, particular sutta. And then there is the ignorance. Yeah, You uh, pay attention to things in the wrong way. Your delusion becomes worse. Uh, the more you attach to things in the world, the more desires you have, the more you build these things up, it actually drags you into the darkness at the same time. Uh, you have more vested interest in things in the world. Uh, you're more deluded, less clarity about what is going on. Uh, all of these things coming together. Uh. So what are then the things to which they do not pay attention? Uh, um, but should, yeah? So this is the... So you should pay attention, but you don't pay attention. So this is uh, the good side, if you like. Yeah. And there are other things that when attention is paid to them, do not give rise to the unarisen defilements uh, and give up the arisen defilement. Uh, the defilements of, again, sensory desire, desire to be reborn and ignorance. Uh, these are the things that you should not pay attention. That, that, that they do, sorry, that they do not pay attention to, but should. Uh, so these are the unskillful people. Uh, yeah, and uh, again, so you, what, if you, with sensual desire for that desire to arise, um, you have to again, you you know, you you. Um, sorry, I'm losing track of what I'm saying here now. Um, you should not. So, how do you avoid sensual desire from arising? Well, you you remember that the sensory world is unreliable. Uh, yeah, and you actually find your pleasures in life somewhere else. You find it in the spiritual path or whatever. Uh, so you gradually move away from that uh, existence. You understand that uh, existence is, uh, you don't delight in existence because you understand the problems with having a particular kind of self-idea. You understand that too is unreliable. That too will change. You cannot hold on to the character you think you have. So existence itself in a particular way is also problematic. Yeah. And uh, you, when you see that, you kind of the, gradually you lose the desire even for existence. And of course, by undermining those things, you're also undermining the defilement of ignorance itself, the uh, avijjasava, uh, because these, again, these things go together. Uh, so all of these things kind of gradually moving away because you're paying attention in the right way. Uh. So all of this is just introductory uh, statements, and now we come to the real core of this sutta, what this is, or this particular defilements of seeing. Because of paying attention to what they should not, and not paying attention to what they should, unarisen defilements arise, and arisen defilements grow. And this is how they attend improperly. Yeah? So this is what it means to attend improperly. And here, this has very much to do with the the um, Asava of existence, yeah. This is uh, has very much to do with the sense of identity and who we take ourselves to be, uh, and this is how you attend improperly. Uh, did I exist in the past? Did I not exist in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? After being what? What did I become in the past? Will I exist in the future? Will I not exist in the future? What will I be in the future? How will I be in the future? After being what, what will I become in the future? Or they are undecided about the present thus. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? 
this sentient being, where did it come from? Where will it go? You can see how this really revolves around the sense of identity. Uh, yeah, who I am, this kind of uh, exploring, this kind of there's probably a little bit of anxiety perhaps behind this. Yeah, this search for an I, this trying to find out who you are. Uh, and in our society, we are, very often we are almost like encouraged to find find yourself, yeah, figure out who you really are, what are you, and then kind of find the life that suits your character, your personality. It's this sense that we have, everyone, that there is some real thing inside of us, the real me. Discover that and then act in accordance with that discovery. Yeah. Yeah, this is how we often are encouraged in society. Yeah, when you grow up, where it is said you are kind of trying to find out when you are still a teenager, trying to find out who you are and kind of um, fit, you know, and then kind of creating something out of that. But um, in Buddhism, this is all just uh, misconceived, really. Yeah. There's some, probably some truth to it because when we are teenagers, we are kind of really confused, perhaps, and then we get a little bit less confused as we grow up. But it is. It, it goes too far, yeah. That that thing which we are looking for uh, just is, isn't there, and we're always going to be slightly anxious if we try to look for something which doesn't exist. It is bound to give rise to anxiety, bound to give rise to uncertainty, bound to give rise to trouble in the long run because it is not there. Things are always changing. What if you do discover that sense of self that is there, and then it changes? Then it's difficult yeah the me that i had that was like this now it is gone and then you grieve for your lost sense of self and that is very hard and then because we are in search of the sense of self we tend to think in this particular way yeah did i exist in the past well this is you know really about the idea of rebirth yeah did i exist before i was reborn obviously this is the kind of thing that perhaps everyone sometimes thinks about uh, and um, uh, I think one of the reasons why we had this question the other day about past life regression yeah could come from that uh, yeah there's many reasons why we might want to do a past life regression one of them might be a pure dhamma reason uh, yeah okay I want to know and when I know I can kind of make uh, have more ideas about the Buddhist idea of rebirth uh, and that is marvelous if you use it like that uh, but very often there's a bit of identity mixed in with this. Uh, I would be really cool to find out who I was. Yeah, that was me in the past. Wow. Actually, it's not really cool at all. Yeah, if you really figure it out, actually, it's pretty uncool. If you want to be cool, don't remember your past lives. Yeah, this is kind of the last thing you should do. Because remembering past life, actually, they usually say it's very traumatic. Yeah, yeah? because you realize you were not Cleopatra. Huh? You were not uh, the emperor of China or whatever. You were none of those things. Yeah. You were just ordinary peasant working in the field, working your back off and dying in the middle of the heat because the temperature was so high. That is kind of the usual thing. Yeah, very because this is what average human beings are. This is what we are in the past. Yeah, or you may be whatever else it was. So it actually takes away usually a lot of the delusion. But often we do these things because we want to find out who we really were. And of course, if someone tells you that you were something grandiose in the past, your ego will cling to that. Yeah, that's probably true. I feel a bit like, you know, Julius Caesar inside. Like I feel that feeling. Yeah, it's there. <laughs> and if, of course, we all have a little bit of those things inside of us. So you can feel it if you want to, and you will know it's there, and you will feel, and that will flatter your ego. And because it flatters your ego, then you will grasp onto it as a consequence. This is how these things work. Yeah. So, um, 
uh, this is why, one of the reasons why we want to figure out what happened in the past. Uh, yeah, and then all of these questions arise, yeah, and this is the kind of questions you get answers to through past life regression. Yeah, um, so first of all, did I exist in the past? Did I not exist in the past? You come, you have to ask this question. Maybe you were just born into this life. There was nothing before that. Uh, but if you think that you were, then you will ask yourself about how and what and all of these things, and how do you are developing? Are you on the path to something positive? Are you going to the uh, omega, the omega point in the kind of the um, on the uh, way beyond the horizon somewhere. What, where, what are you heading for? And are you developing in the right way? And are you are we here to learn a lesson so that we can kind of continue developing in the right direction? Uh, it's not that we are here to learn a lesson, but we better learn the lessons anyway. Otherwise, we're going to carry on uh, not learning it in the future. Uh, but it's not kind of a given that we are. It's not we are not reborn so that we can learn a lesson. We are just reborn, and we better learn the lesson regardless. But it's not so that we can learn the lesson. That's not really a Buddhist outlook. And then, of course, we have the same ideas about the future. Yeah, will I exist in the future? It's exactly the same thing. Yeah, this feeling of um, will I exist or not? And the tendency for most human beings is to have a sense, this bhava tanha, the desire to exist, yeah, means that usually we will have a desire to exist in the future. And uh, often that will then make itself felt as a belief in rebirth. We often we believe in rebirth can simply be because we want to. We don't want to stop. Yeah, some people they come. Sometimes it comes from that. Uh, but from a Buddhist point of view, rebirth is no good. Uh, yeah. So if you find a kind of sense of security in rebirth, uh, and sometimes you do that, uh, it doesn't come from the Buddhist teachings. It comes from the sense of self. Uh, if you think rebirth is nice. Uh, so rebirth is not really something positive. And, you know, sometimes you hear the criticism of Buddhists, oh, yeah, you just believe in rebirth because, uh, you know, you want to exist after you die. And sometimes that might be true, but that's not really a Buddhist outlook. It's more like a personal sense of self outlook. But then there are people who want to not exist after they die, and they will choose the other option here because their life has been so much suffering, so problematic. I remember one of my fellow monks, one said he told his auntie, oh yeah, you know, when you die, there's going to be re- you're going to be reborn again. Yeah, and he thought he was saying something nice. Yeah, she might be happy. And she said, oh no, I don't want to be reborn. My life has been so much suffering, so terrible. When I die, I want that to be the end. Yeah, and some people have that ex- experience in life where they don't really want to get reborn at all. They want this to be the end of it. Quite a number, quite a lot of people actually have that sense and that feeling here. Yeah. And the Buddha says, interestingly, those people who have a feeling of not existing in the future, yeah, this kind of uh, annihilationist view, you want to call it, you cease to exist after death, they are closer to the Dhamma than those who have an eternalist viewpoint, yeah, that you will continue. You find that in the suttas, and that's quite interesting. Yeah? That says you a lot about the Dhamma. And the reason the Buddha says that is because they're not afraid of the end of existence. And because you're not afraid of the end of existence, it means you have an idea of what the Buddhist path of cessation is all about. So this is kind of, this is uh, the deep side of Buddhism. Anyway, so this is how we often uh, think, yeah? And then you have this last one here about am I or am I not, which sounds kind of strange. What do you mean, am I? I mean, we are right here, 
And the point of this is simply that, again, this is idea of these uh, two opposites in Buddhism. The annihilationist view, yeah, which means you stop when you die, and the eternalist view, which means you carry on potentially forever being reborn or whatever. And these are the two contrasts in Buddhism, the two sides of wrong view. And when you say, am I, that's what it means. I am in a kind of absolute sense. I will carry on. Am I not means you will be annihilated when you die. This is what this really refers to. And then you have all of these subsidiary questions. Yeah, How is it that I am? What is it that I am? Etc. Etc. Where have I come from? Where will I go? So why is this so problematic? Why does this matter so much, this kind of view? And the answer is that the moment you take yourself to be someone, the moment you say, I am, that's the kind of primordial sin, primordial sin in Buddhism, I am. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of different kind of, you know, Buddhism is different when you hear that. So I am is the primordial sin in Buddhism. And um, the reason is because the moment you say I am, then you will have to have certain attributes. Yeah, you cannot have I am without certain attributes. Those attributes are very often your mental content. Yeah, some of your mental, maybe your will. Yeah, I am the willer. I am the doer. I'm the agent. I'm the creator. You know, we love the creative arts in our society. Yes, yeah, so creation is put very highly on the pedestal in, in uh, many societies. I'm not sure, every, probably everywhere, really. Yeah, Because creative people, whether it is in engineering or whether it is in the arts or whatever it is, they create things that are useful for society or are beautiful or whatever it is. Yeah, So it's always put on the pedestal. So then we identify with that creator. Yeah, I'm the creator. I'm the doer, uh, the one who makes all of this stuff. Uh, uh, or you, you identify with certain feelings. You feel in a certain way. This is me. It's like a perception of who you are. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm quite a happy person. I feel happy usually. Or I'm caring and nice to other people or whatever it is. Or you just identify with your consciousness. Yeah, the awareness. Here I am. Uh, but all of these things are subject to change. None of these things are permanent uh, yeah that creative act that you used to be able to do maybe you can't do it anymore after a while your mental faculties decline or whatever uh, that feeling of being a particular person you know sometimes you wake up in the morning you don't quite feel like yourself you feel slightly different uh, i'm sure you all had that feeling sometimes yeah Ooh, what happened now i feel really weird uh, something happened uh, yeah and that is your sense of self being challenged uh, because as soon as you say, I am, because you have these qualities, it means that eventually your sense of self will be challenged. And that will be very unpleasant, very scary. And for many of you, it will have happened already many times in your life. It happens to everyone. And sometimes it happens more powerful, powerful than other times. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, because the sense of self also then extends into the world. Yeah, because that sense of self wants to be happy. And to be happy, that sense of self then goes into the world and attaches to things in the world to make yourself feel happy. So we get into relationships. We get into having material possessions. We get into status. We get into whether it's education or um, professional status or whatever it is. And we get into all of these things, that kind of... Uh, uh, help us to solidify, try to solidify this inner feeling. It's all the search to make the I permanent, to make it solid. And of course, those things in the world are utterly unreliable. 
Yeah, we all know that. It's, it's one of the kind of Buddhism 101. Yeah, things in the world are unreliable. It is so uncertain. We don't know if these things are going to last. We can't cling to any of these things in the world because nature, the world, is just going to, come, it's going to be snatched from our hands. We can't hold on to those things. And so our sense of self is always going to be challenged. The moment you say, I am, all of these negative consequences flow from that. Yeah, the I am grasps things, hold on to things, wherever that is, and extends its tentacles into the world, grasps onto the worldly things, things that are utterly impossible to hold on to, because nature is impermanent and unreliable, and you can't grasp these things. So this is the problem with this, yeah? It is really problematic. Yeah? And so um, yeah, the, the, the the primordial I am it starts to speculate about things. Uh, and the more we speculate and think about things, the more we build up the sense of I. The more we build up the sense of I, the more vulnerable we are to change and impermanence, and the more we suffer as a consequence. Uh, I am leads to suffering. This is kind of the root, core, the root point here, yeah? I am always leads to suffering here. Yeah. It's kind of, isn't this really interesting? This is, uh, you know, Buddhism, and this is why Buddhism is so different from almost anything else. I am, the idea I am is problematic. It must lead to suffering here. Yeah. This is what this is really is saying here. Yeah. So let's, let's carry on a little bit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I should say maybe also that, uh, you know, in... Um, Meditation, sometimes you will notice this happens. Uh, yeah, you, you kind of, as you try to let go in meditation practice, uh, sometimes you reach a plateau. You can't go any deeper. Uh, you don't become any more still. Uh, yeah, the joy and the happiness isn't coming up, maybe as you would expect. Uh, and why is that? Part of that is because of the I am. You're holding on to the things uh, that are, you take to be yourself. And a very important part of that, I just mentioned that before, is the feeling of being in charge, being the creator, the agent in your life, the actor in your life. But you have to let go of that actor to be able to get into deep meditation. This is one of the reasons why it is so hard. Yeah, It's not really hard at all, it's just that our sense of self gets in the way. So the sense of self is actually a problem in meditation practice. And a large part of the things, if you enjoy being conscious, uh, being aware of the world. Yeah, I like to see things. Uh, I like to hear. And of course, most people do that. I like to just experience the world. Uh, if you like those things, uh, you will not be able to let go of the senses. Uh, if you cannot let go of the senses completely, again, it will stop you from entering deep meditation. Uh, we are attached to the ability to see. If someone says, I'm going to make you blind, you probably say, no thanks. Yeah, I, There's no kind of urgency with that. Thank you very much. Yeah, But that is what you're giving up in your meditation. You're giving up the very ability to see. And it feels like you're giving it up. But of course, it comes back again later on. But mo moment for that time, it feels like you're giving it up permanently. That's why it is so hard again. That whole world has to be given up. Yeah, so we attach to these things. It's part of the broader I am experience. And that's why meditation can become so hard. But it also shows you, if you use these teachings wisely, it also shows you the solution. And the solution is that as you meditate, as you become peaceful, the sense of I is reduced. Yeah, you are thinking less. 
And as you are thinking less and you become more peaceful, it is as if the I is gradually disappearing. So much of the I is manifests through the thinking mind. Yeah, You're thinking about your life, about what you do, your relationship, all of these kind of things. And then as the thinking goes on, actually your sense of self is being reduced. And what happens when your sense of self is reduced? It's delightful. Yeah, it's so beautiful when that happens. It's actually really nice to get rid of that blooming self. Get away, self. Don't have anything to do with you. You are bad. Yeah, And uh, this starts to show you the path out of this problem. As soon as you start to understand that the sense of self actually is problematic. Yeah, And please contemplate that when you meditate because uh, you will start to see that is true. Then you start to understand the idea of non-self, why it is so powerful, why it is so useful, how it leads to such great and marvelous happiness. Yeah? So you let go of that uh, and then you start to be on the right track. Yeah? And then it uh, kind of it encourages you. Yeah? Non-self doesn't seem dangerous anymore. In fact, it seems the exact opposite. It seems like a kind of freedom, a liberation from something oppre- uh, oppressive inside of us. That is really what it is all about. Uh, so anyway, so um, yeah, and then it takes this further. So this is the basic idea of I am in a certain way. And then uh, they attend, when they attend improperly in this way, one of the following six views arises in them uh, and is taken as a genuine fact. The view myself exists in an absolute sense. The view myself does not exist in an absolute sense. The view that I perceive the self with the self. The view I perceive what is not self with the self. The view I perceive the self with what is not self. Or they have such a view, this self of mine is the one who speaks and feels and experiences the results of good and bad actions or deeds in all the different realms. This self is permanent, everlasting, eternal and imperishable and will last forever and ever. This is called a misconception, a thicket of views, etc., etc. Let's just leave that aside. Let's come back to this paragraph first of all. So please turn the page back again. <laughs> so just uh, giving you some exercise, turning pages back and forth. And um, so let's, we, we need to discuss these six things just a little bit at least. Yeah. So the following six views arise, and these are not really mutually incompatible. A number of these views can arise at the same time. So they're kind of one or more of these six views. And uh, it starts off with my view, my, sorry, myself exists in an absolute sense. And basically it means that uh, you take yourself to have a permanent essence. That's what it means. Yeah, I exist. I have a permanent essence. When I die, I will carry on. I will either carry on like hanging out with God forever if you are a Christian, or you will carry on in samsara if you are a Hindu perhaps, uh, or maybe, or whatever. Yeah, In a certain way, you will carry on into the future. There's an es- essential part of you that somehow exists and is always there. Yeah? That is the what is called the eternalist view, Yeah, the sasata ditti in Pali. Yeah? 
Then you have the annihilationist view, the Uccheda Ditti. Myself does not exist in an absolute sense. When I die, that will be it. Yeah, end of story. And no more happening after that. Those are the two kind of typical views that people have in this world. In fact, if you look at the world, this is pretty much what everyone believes in. Yeah, Either they believe in some sort of create the God or eternal existence in one way or another, or they say, yeah, all that religious stuff yeah, is no good. When you die, you just pass away. That's it, the end of existence. And that is how people have thought about the world forever. It's always been like that. Yeah. Sometimes people think, yeah, in our modern world we are sophisticated, we have given up the religious stuff, now we are atheists, and we, we think that when you die, that's it. Yeah, everything just comes to a halt. Actually, it's not all that sophisticated. People thought about that already at the Buddha's time. In the suttas, people had that view. Yeah? And it's not super-duper sophisticated, because this is one of the, seems to be one of the core reactions that we have to existence. We think about the world in that way, and I think that if we had access to uh, uh, the thought of human beings prior even to the time of the Buddha, no matter how far back you go, you would always have found these two things, because this is exactly how we tend to think about the world. Uh, either you are permanent, or when you die, you come to an end. Uh, yeah? These two ways. And they are and they are rooted to a large part in the babha tanha and the vibhava tanha, yeah? the craving to exist and the craving to be annihilated. So they make these uh, uh, philosophies based on these ideas, these kind of cravings. So anyway, so and then you have these interesting things. Yeah, you perceive the self with the self. What does that mean? And what that means is that. Uh, you have an idea of who you are, yeah, and you have an idea, I am the mind, yeah, and then the mind perceives the mind. I know with my mind that I exist, I, so the mind perceives the mind. The self perceives, you perceive the self with the self. That's really all it means. Yeah, so you have an idea, or you may even take yourself to be the body, but, but that's a bit strange to do, but some people might even do that, yeah, and uh, I think... I think sometimes that's what they do in Christianity because there's talk about you know when you kind of uh, when you what is how does it go when you kind of you resurrection yeah and your body kind of goes with you or whatever it's kind of weird I don't know I don't really understand that but that's kind of how they think sometimes so if even the body is part of the self in that kind of situation so um, yeah so the self perceives the self and then you have the idea that uh, uh, the percel you, I perceive what is not self with the self, and that would be like you take the you understand that the body is impermanent. Yeah, when you die, the body is going to have to be left behind, but the mind perceives the body. So the self is the mind, but you perceive the body with the mind. So you perceive the non-self with the self. Yeah, and then or, or you perceive self with what is not self. So in this case, it means that uh, your perceptions are not actually part of you, uh, but with your perception, you can maybe perceive your consciousness or you perceive your will. Yeah. So perception says, oh yeah, I can feel, I can perceive that I'm aware. That awareness, that's the real me. So it's the non-self aspect of the mind perceives the self aspect. 
So what is the point of all this? The point of all this is just to say that one way or another, you see something in you that is permanent, yeah? And there's different ways of doing that. And the reason why the Buddha lays it down in such detail is to make sure you can't really wriggle out, yeah? You can't find a self where actually there is no self. Yeah, if you think that you have found a hole in the Buddha's ideas, then uh, you know that's what he's trying to avoid it for you to kind of sneak out and kind of uh, smuggle the hole out of the uh, you know of this this particular system. Now, there's one thing that is missing here. You, you will notice that there is two things. There's non-self and there's self. Yeah, and there's four combinations of that: self with non-self, non-self with self, self with self. But there's one thing that is missing here. He doesn't perceive non-self with non-self. Yeah, that is missing there. And there is a reason why that is missing, because that is precisely the right kind of view. That is the right view. Yeah, Perceiving non-self with non-self is actually what is going on. So when we perceive, what we are perceiving is non-self, and the thing that we are perceiving that with is also non-self. You're perceiving non-self with non-self. That is emptiness, yeah. That's kind of that's exactly what emptiness is, yeah. So there's nothing there inherent that you kind of you can uh, you can see things with precisely, yeah. So um, that is missing because that is the right outlook uh, from a Buddhist point of view. That person is no longer thinking wrongly, and that's why it is not there. Yeah. And then, based on all of that, yeah, if you think in the wrong way then you get to this view yeah which is kind of this is kind of considered a complete wrong view that the self of mind is the one who speaks and feels and experiences good and bad results yeah in the different realms in other words you get reborn here and there and you experience all of these kind of things and this self is permanent yay everlasting eternal and imperishable and will last forever and ever so this is the um, full fledged idea of eternalism and of course that is very problematic because the moment you have that view you're going to be disappointed because the moment you have that view you are going to cling and adhere to things which uh, which nature is to change and that is why this is called a misconception it is called a thicket of views the desert of views it's a desert, yeah? It's like dry, barren. There's nothing to be found there. There's nothing to really satisfy you in a deep sense. The trick of view, the evasiveness of views, the fetter of views. That is uh, Adan Sujato's translation. Um, I thought I could fine no i i i'm not going to bother with that it's getting too late for that so just leave that out but you can see this is kind of a standard way that the buddha talks about views yeah these kind of views are bad they are fetters thickets deserts you are lost the idea of a thicket is that you are kind of lost in this dense wood trying to find your way out and you can't see in front of you or behind you don't know really what is going on it is a bad thing an uneducated, ordinary person who is fettered by views is not freed from birth, old age and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness and distress. They are not freed from suffering, I say. So uh, this is what binds you to existence. The deepest kind of binding to existence is the I am binding. 
Yeah, and this so this in Buddhism, I am that very idea is very problematic yeah, because this is the root cause, uh, if you like, the uh, delusion of a self uh, that keeps you trapped in samsara. If you have that idea, you will suffer here. Uh, that is the problem according to the Buddha. So uh, that is the bad side of things. The good side of things comes tomorrow morning here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is like. And just doing a bit of PR campaign. So in case you want to, in case you are leaving tonight, now maybe you will come tomorrow. So um, <laughs> anyway, so that is all for now. So we'll stop there and we'll carry on with this uh, interesting stuff uh, tomorrow morning. But before that, of course, we will meet again later on. So uh, please come out again at 6.30 and we will do some uh, Q&A things at 6.30. So let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.